Welcome to the 20th episode of the TIFF podcast. The TIFF podcast is aimed at offering a panoramic of training options, career paths and opportunities to registrars and people considering a career in public health and thinking of joining the training. We do this exploring the personal experiences, professional life stories and advice of trainees and former trainees. Today, we have with us a trainee from the West Midlands who has recently been at something that we call a national treasure a very special placement with the Chief Medical Officer at the Department of Health. But we'll pass the mic to our guest, Andrew Dalton. Welcome, Andrew. Could you please introduce yourself? Hello. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm Andrew Dalton. I'm a public health registrar now in ST5 uh, in the West Midlands. And uh, can I ask you a bit about what range of placements you've done during training? before we dwell straight into the uh, National Treasure post that you have just completed? Of course, I started off with my local authority attachments in Shropshire and moved straight into health protection, then managed to do more kind of national and regional roles. So with healthcare, public health in the PHE Centre, and a year in London for the Department of Health, and now I'm working with screening and immunisation team in the North Midlands. Thank you. And I recently had the opportunity to listen to your presentation of the work you've done at the DH. But before you tell us what you did there, could you explain for our audience what, I mean, who the Chief Medical Officer is and what it does? So the Chief Medical Officer is an old role, and it's a slightly more complicated role than than you might imagine. So it's been a role since the Victorian time, since I think 1850s. Um, it is an independent, so the Chief Medical Officer is an independent advisor to the UK government. There's a slightly nuanced thing that I still don't fully understand. We have the Chief Medical Officer for England, who is Dame Sally Davis, who I worked with for a year. Then there are chief medical officers for the four, uh, for the three other countries, for Scotland, for Wales, and for Northern Ireland. So that's a set of roles. But then within that, our chief medical officer is the independent advisor to the UK government as a whole. So she advises on health matters, tends to more of a public health portfolio, with the NHS being kind of a separate body with its own advisory function, slightly more separated from the Department for Health. Um, she tends to um, advise on public health. Um, as part of the role, she has a statutory duty to publish annual reports, which is changed over the years, I think it's safe to say. Um, they were slightly more just looked at the state of the health in the country in the past. Now they are what Chief Medical Officer describes she, the best way of describing it is as advocacy reports. And so she chooses an area where she feels it's underserved, um, slightly, yes, slightly not enough attention on it, and chooses to do a report on that topic. Um, the way the report is put together is it's not all her or her experts. Um, it's not of her writing it by any stretch. Um, 
she chooses the best people in the field to write chapters on the subject and then synthesize it. So um, it's yeah, independent experts and then summarize and, 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 and recommendations by the chief medical officer herself. Very, very interesting. And could you tell us more about how you personally contributed to this huge piece of work that is the annual report? So my role was as editor-in-chief of the annual reports for last year, this, which came out in, in March 2018. So kind of lots of things to do change over the course of the project. The subject of the annual report had been decided when I started, so that was going to be on pollution and health. So then the first thing to do is, I suppose, you might not have had to do this had I known something about the subject, but I need to get up to speed with the um, with the, the topic area. The first thing in terms of working with the CMO was to, for me to scope out the subject, speak to experts, kind of off the record informally, just to get an idea of what subjects people think, people who know think should be going into this report and producing a draft outline of things to go into it and then presenting that to the CMO and working with her to get from that to a list of things that are definitely going in, in turn getting to a list of chapters to go into a report and a structure and then kind of up to me to decide or to find the best people to write each chapter. Those chapters go off to be commissioned. Um, a lot of the work then is chasing people up for quite a few months. So that's sort of the period where you're not doing quite as much topic work, but you're still busy and making sure you get the work back. And then it's about reviewing the work, making sure it's just the, the general editorial stuff, really uh, making sure the quality is there, making sure some of it needs second expert opinion, so peer review. Some of it I didn't bring that all together to producing a, a report, and then that that takes a lot of time. But in a way, the tricky bit is the end bit. So it's taking from those um, eight chapters, which are kind of letters presenting evidence to the CMO, to then produce a summary chapter, which I assist the CMO writing, and then the big thing is the recommendations out of that, and so. Obviously, my job is working very closely, bringing all that together and, and helping the CMO write, um, write those, those first bits, which are the most crucial bits in, in a lot of ways. Thank you. I, I find it, I mean, it's a very sort of fascinating role and uh, I mean, that, that of contributing to, to this, this enormous undertaking. And could you, could you talk to us about some of the priorities that have been at this point identified in the report, in particular... I found the focus on noise very interesting, uh, noise as pollution. I myself am a strong believer that noise pollution is tremendously important and, and it's generally ignored and neglected as a contributor to poor health. So I, I was really happy to see that it was mentioned in such a prominent document. Yes, I think noise got a lot of attention. Uh, not necessarily media attention, but I think people who, who know this field were also quite happy that noise was chosen. I think we didn't choose to discuss noise specifically. I think the big overarching message, which is why noise was discussed, was that we need to start looking at all pollutants. So there's been more and more focus on air quality over the last, especially two years, 18 months, which of course is an issue for public health. There's no 
uh, questioning that. But then it's about thinking about all the other pollutants that are still there. And it, it's really interesting, the range of pollutants. Some of them are new pollutants. And some of them are old pollutants, which we've had around for a long time and people perhaps starting to forget about, but this is still there. I think in terms of the overarching messages, the, the, big, the big thing that shocked all of us was, I think, a lack of evidence. So there's definitely a call for, for more evidence in the impact of pollutants on, on human health. Mm-hmm. There were some fairly... Pollutants that talks about a lot that the evidence base really isn't sound um, about what risks these actually um, do, if any. Um, a, a, a big overarching theme coming out from all of the, the chats in the report about better data quality around pollution and human health, so combining environmental um, data sets with the health outcomes, having better surveillance, all having all of that system in place, both to protect the public's health and to generate primary knowledge um, to find out where the threats are going to be in the future and where they are now. And then I think the big thing that came out in the media messaging and that the public picked up on was and we felt it very important to... It, it, was, it was always going to conundrum. Um, this, this report was interesting because it covered different remits, different departments. It was outside health, basically. So we wanted some focus on the health community because it, it's not ideal for us as public health people to tell all the other sectors to sort this problem out for us. We need to take some responsibility within healthcare. So there was um, a focus on how healthcare can do its bit and stop polluting and that healthcare does pollute and healthcare causes ill health, the ill health that it's meaning to stop and prevent and, and you, you've already touched on this uh, just now, but what recommendations does the report contain? And explain, if possible, why does the report does not focus on any prescriptive recommendations? I remember you made a very interesting observation on this at the registrar's meeting that we had in Birmingham, and uh, I think it would be interesting for our audience to hear. So the the the, the wording of the recommendations was um, surprisingly time-consuming. It was a lot of precision and effort and time went into that. But just quickly going over, there were 22 recommendations. I'm not going to speak about them all individually, but they cover a range of organisations. Some directed at Public Health England, so talking about getting the surveillance data systems sorted out. Some looking at local authorities, uh, local governments. So uh, I think one example was getting them to um, seize the opportunity that having public health, environmental health planning in one roof. A lot of the levers to address pollution locally are together, so kind of use the opportunity. Um, considering pollution planning would be an example of that. Um, ones for UKRI, so the new, newly founded UKRI, to really look at this, this idea of environmental and health data sets, getting them together. What is UKRI? It's the uh, UK Research and Innovation, I think. Okay. Oh, this just for, for our audiences so, uh, beyond the UK that tend yeah, to need the so, acronyms. So UKRI is, yeah, usage. It's 
UK Research and Innovation. So it's the overarching body that will, it's the over the body that is now instead of the separate research councils. Okay. So all of the research money now instead of going into MRC, ESRC, ESRC etc., um, is handled by UKRI. Um, so the yes, I think the really interesting about the recommendation that it's um, not about not being prescriptive; it's about the right balance, and it, it it was a very hard balance. So as a recommendation, it needs to be actionable, and it needs to it needs some kind of endpoint, any kind of the the, the basics of um, implementing things change and all of that kind of thing. Say that we need some kind of endpoint. But as an independent advisor, um, the CMO is looking at the evidence, but she doesn't work in the institution, the organization that is going to implement it. She's saying that the evidence suggests that you need to be doing this, but she doesn't necessarily know how. So it's a balance between having something that was actionable and can be ticked off, which is absolutely required, um, with the room for an organization to implement it in its own structures. And so was just getting getting the wording right to allow both was um, hard. And I think the people who were fantastic at this were the civil servants around the CMO, so they were a lot more used to this and, and understood and saw things in recommendations which could be taken wrongly, which I would never have seen, and worded them in hopefully the way that will do the most good and, um, and get some change. And, and and this leads very well to the next question. So what have what has been the main learning that you gain from this plane spent? Uh, who would you recommend it to, and at what stage in their training? What was it? Uh, also to clarify, was it an out of program? Yeah. So this was out of program in the in the West Midlands. Treats this as out of program, like any other national treasure placement. Uh, but that wouldn't be the same for everybody in the in the UK. I learned about this idea. It, it, it comes from that kind of thing that we've just been talking about, but about implementing things and really getting change done. So the we work quite collaboratively with sometimes with the people who the recommendations are going to. So if not not being afraid to get some work in early with your stakeholders and not watering down the recommendations by any stretch, not making it easy, but just working with them to allow the recommendations to have the best bed to kind of lie in and to really thrive in. And I think this is this is something that any, no matter what level of geography you're working in, it is, it's something that is really important. And it's not really a way that I had worked or particularly seen in the, in, in the, before working with a CMO. I think that's that's a major piece of learning for me. And then there's all learning about how the government works and all of those kind of things were were fascinating. Um, working with other departments was particularly interesting and something that I was really fortunate because of the topic of report. I worked a lot with DEFRA, and so seeing how two departments work together um, was yeah very insightful. And then learning a lot about the subject matter was a big learning. So. I think towards the end, I got mistaken for someone who had a history in environmental health, which was, I'm not sure it was a good thing or it's probably 
an indication of how much reading I'd done. But um, so yes, that was a, a great opportunity. Uh, I think in terms of the type of who the placement might be suitable for, I think you need some kind of academic comfort. So you need to be comfortable in an academic environment, even though it's a service job, you're commissioning evidence to be produced. Um, and you also, you, you need to be someone to get into a new area of public health and learn a lot about it. Because although I wasn't writing any of the chapters, I had to know enough about the world of pollution to be able to critique everything. Um, and that just took a lot of, that took a few months of not really doing a lot of output, but just reading lots and lots. That's got to be something that you're willing to do. And anyone that knows me, you'd be, I, I'm suitable for that more than suitable for that. <laughs> um, But the other, yes, I think that that's the real main thing. Um, it's not about being an academic at all. It's just about being comfortable in that and being really willing to um, have that, that period of thinking. And apart from that, I think, I'm not sure about, if there is an ideal phase of training, I think there's a lot of dogma around you need to be as late as possible. Um, because it's out of program, it's not something you can do in ST5. So I think a lot of people would advise about doing it as late as possible to make the most of it, um, which perhaps I, I can see. But again, I, I don't think that's an absolute from my experience of it. Thank you. And, and uh, this, again, links well with the next question. Uh, what way are the main challenges that you encounter during such a complicated and high-level project and how did you overcome them? For example, how was teamwork like at the DH? And, and we had previous guests who mentioned that the isolation of some of their placements and self-directed nature of the work were the main challenges. Was this also your experience? I think the main challenge was just the size of the project. Um, it was hard and required a lot of organisation, keeping everything, um, keeping all the plates spinning, especially when you've got all of the, the chapters out for in different stages of being uh, written and separate kind of in boxes. We had boxes of text independent of that also being, um, so potentially 30 pieces of work out with different authors um, across the world. That was hard and it just required organisation. And it's just really, it's just like any project, it's just, good project management, which is something that I um, had to do and had to kind of learn to do. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. So the Chief Medical Officer's office is set. It's within the Department of Health, but she has a whole separate team. It's part of the whole independence. Um, it might sound like I'm going off on a tangent, but that in a way affects the work. So there's a very, with the private office and other support staff, the CMO has her own specific team, which made it better for me in a way because I had a real home, whereas I can imagine if you're working in other places in the department, you might become a bit more lost. So I certainly had a team around me because I had the CMO's team, which is a, a very discreet group of people. Um, mm -hmm. So that was fine in terms of the, the personal side of work. Um, I think I, I certainly think the self-directed comment is, is true. You need to do the work yourself. You need to lead the work. Um, there was opportunities working. So the day job for me was getting that report done. I had opportunities to, as and when time was available, to, to work with the policy teams on anything that came up. That's something that I found 
difficult making those contacts through your department. Um, it, that wasn't easy. And I think that's probably similar to the, the, the previous comment that you're talking about. And uh, going a bit more on the bureaucratic side of things, was it complicated to apply for a national treasure? I think that's probably oversimplifying. I think that question oversimplifies the problem. I think it's simple to apply for some national treasures, um, but not all of them. Um, the one, so this one, I think the four, I think the four now are in the department, they are relatively simple because they come out, they're advertised properly, there's a proper interview process. Um, it, it's like applying for a job, but it, it's, I think everyone knows about it now. I think there are some national treasures that people still don't know about and are not advertised equally. Um, so then I think it gets more complicated. And, and, and so do you, do you believe that the current system of national treasure applications or advertisement is fit for purpose? Or is it allowing trainees in certain locations to have a differential access to national and international training opportunities than those in other regions? I think there's, uh, there's, there's clear issues with the, the way national treasures are run at the minute. I think the, the dis disparity between the deaneries on how you access them um, isn't, isn't ideal. Uh, it's, I think for me, in terms of equity, if you're having to if it's yeah if it's a national project everyone should have equal access and that really stems from where you come from and your how your dean let you out and let you go to do these placements and then the other the other equity aspect is the other side it's from the the, the host organizations themselves and i think some to a lot of effort to advertise put get them to the faculty and, and push them out there and so everybody knows about them i think some seems to be less well known about and open to inequity. And have any further opportunities arisen as a result of your work on this project? For example, has this placement influenced your career decisions? In terms of the former, not yet, but there is, um, it might do, I might get the opportunity to work on implementing some of the recommendations with some of the organisations. Um, that's kind of an early stage, but that's something that would, would be really good because it's yeah, really seeing through uh, the work that started in a way. In terms of influencing my career, it's, it's massively changed what I'm thinking about doing. Um, not in a positive way, it's probably more in a negative way. It's more, it's more made me aware of things that I don't want to do. But I think I've certainly found, it's hard to explain, I think it's, it's really made me see what I'm interested in as a placement, seeing the kind of things that go on in public health at that national level, the evidence generating places, um, it certainly made me realise the opportunities that are out there and where I don't think I would have had the opportunity to see those things otherwise. Okay, so all, all in all a very positive experience, I would say, even, even yeah, sort of... Yeah, uh, or even... Absolutely. Um, I think the it, it positive, even if it is just the number of things that I know I don't want to do now, that's a good thing because it whittles down to hopefully yeah. finding the thing that I do want to do. Exactly, exactly. And and now we, we're heading towards the end of this uh, this episode. I'll move on to more personal questions. We we traditionally ask these to everyone. So what, what public health resources do you rely on for your continued training, sources of news, reports or current events? Do you have any recommendations for our, uh, for our listeners? 
don't think I'd do anything particularly. Um, I don't think I'm a I'm not not a big reader of books. Um, that's something that even in my past, I I think books are inherently out of date. Um, and obviously they have a role, but I probably again it it shows because I used to be an academic, but I do keep up to date with academic journals. Um, have a look through the content list of a number of journals probably every week. Um, I'm not entirely sure how useful that is, but I enjoy doing it. So, um, in terms of synthesizing news, it's probably cliched, and I'm not sure if it's something that I want to say anymore. But I think Twitter is useful. I think it's become a bit. Twitter's become the answer to everything, and I don't think that. Um, but in terms of not contributing to it, but in terms of summarising, getting it a trusted group of news sources and using that, then I do use that professionally. Um, do, do you listen to any podcast, given that we have a bias towards this medium? <laughs> I don't, I'm afraid. Ah, okay. So I, I think you, you will listen to your own episode, at least, I hope. Yeah. Um, <laughs> The the usual traditional question that we tend to ask every trainee on the show at the end is where would you spend your study budget? Which conference, course, or event would you recommend to a registrar or to a public health person to to sign up to? I think this is a really clear, easy answer. I've resisted over the last four and a half years, I've resisted ever going to the PhD or FPH conferences because I think social medicine is for me, the, the best public health conference. Okay. Um, okay. It's, but, um, it's just the, the quality of the work, the evidence, I think, the especially for, for younger, more junior people, um, it's a lot more accommodating, um, but has a real quality to it. And I think the mix of the, the willingness of senior people to mix and speak in the same session as someone who's just doing a PhD um, is, is amazing. And so by far the best conference. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for the recommendation. I'm, I'm sure that some of our listeners will uh, will therefore replan some of their study budget decisions. And uh, is there anything else that you would like to discuss that we haven't covered? Anything you want to tell to our listeners? No, no. Okay. So it's, it's, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Andrew. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your experience with us and for uh, giving us so much insight into such a specific and, and, and quite, I would say, exotic placement uh, than uh, an important one that you've done at the Department of Health. And uh, I hope to have you again here with us, maybe later on in your career, to look back and see what the effect of the reporters had on public health in the United Kingdom and beyond. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we have reached the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. I'd like to remind you to follow us on SoundCloud to receive updates on new episodes and to contact us if you have any ideas on future topics, any suggestions, or you would like to be interviewed about an interesting placement or activity you have done during the public health training. Goodbye.